We have been touched by the gospel. We have not committed intellectual suicide and check our brains at the door on a Sunday morning, but we have worked it through rationally and logically, and we have come to a point of trust in a risen Savior. That's why we say, I believe. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. As many of you are aware, over the last few weeks we have been working our way through the Apostles' Creed, and today we're coming to the part in the Creed that talks about, I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was dead, buried, descended into hell, and the third day he rose from the dead. And so to help us understand that section of the Apostles' Creed, we're turning to John chapter 20. So if you have a Bible with you, can you turn to John chapter 20, and you'll find it on page 1685, page 1685, John chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. We're reading together the first nine verses. It's a well-known story, of course, of Easter Sunday morning, and you'll be, certainly be familiar with it. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His Holy Word. If this morning, before you left home, your, your telephone buzzed and you looked in your pocket, and there was an email. And the email was from a rather prestigious law firm in New York. And as you read through the email, the lawyer writing informed you that a letter would come in the next day or so, but he had good news to tell you. A distant relative whom you didn't know terribly well had died, a very wealthy relative, and had left you over five million dollars. Now, if you are anything like me, I would have read that and thought, yeah, right. It's a scam of some kind. Probably read over it a second or a third time and said, no thanks. 
But tomorrow morning, as you go to pick up the mail, there's an envelope from the same law firm. New York City has a street address. And you open up the letter, and it reiterates what you received in the email this morning. I suspect your next thought would probably be, well, I'm not convinced, but it's worth checking up on and see if it's true. That, in some ways, is how our world today looks at the resurrection. Well, we're not kind of too sure. It would be nice to believe, but yeah, it just sounds too good to be true. Well, if you're there in your mind this morning, come with me, please, to John's penultimate chapter and examine what is going on here. As there are several things in this chapter I suspect will strike you as a new approach to understanding what John has written, and I'm hoping it will take you back to that first Easter Sunday to grasp for yourself the reality of what took place. Now, remember what's happened. Jesus, of course, had been arrested and tried and executed on the Friday. The ladies had tried to prepare the body before sundown, and you're well enough educated in biblical studies to know that once sundown comes on a Friday night, of course, the Sabbath day comes. And so the ladies, having buried Jesus, decided they would come back and finish off the anointing of the body with spices and oils uh, before too many days uh, went on. And Mary had gone on her own. And when she arrived, the stone was away from the tomb. And the entrance was open. And she looks inside, and there's no body. And so I imagine she very quickly got back to Peter and John in this passage, although the passage doesn't name John. But New Testament scholars are pretty convinced it's John for a number of reasons. John, in writing about himself and his Gospels, will talk about the youngest of the disciples, the one whom Jesus loved. And most would say Peter and John. Peter and John run to the tomb, John, being the younger, arrives there first. And I kind of think, since it's John's gospel, John is a little competitive to, just to let everyone know he got there first and he looks inside and he sees there is no body. And as he steps back from the entrance to the tomb, Peter arrives and Peter steps inside. And notice the detail in the passage. Notice exactly what it says. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Now, what is going on there? There are two or three uses of the word saw and looked in this passage. And if you were reading it in New Testament Greek, you would immediately see there's a difference. When John arrives, he looks in, 
And it's the normal word for see or saw used in New Testament Greek. It's used all over the place. Plebo, straightforward, or plepo rather. He's casually looked in, doesn't see the body. He steps back out. And then Peter steps forward. And it says he saw the strips of linen lying there, the burial cloth that was around Jesus' head, and some were folded in one side, and the others were not. And the words used for he saw are quite distinctive. It's the same words we get our English word theorize from. And in essence, it means this, gazing intently, seeking an explanation. Now, please hear that. Gazing intently, seeking an explanation. John had quickly looked and stepped back, but when Peter comes, he enters fully in, and he's looking at all that has taken place, and he's wondering, what on earth is going on here? He's trying to rationalize it. He's trying to work out in his mind, why would grave robbers strip a body of the cloth that had all of the spices in it to help preserve the body? Because if you're stealing a body, you want it to smell nice for as long as you can. So why would grave robbers do this? And Peter is gazing intently, trying to work out what's happening. He's being rational and logical. He's thinking, and he's looking for an explanation. Peter doesn't turn up at the tomb and says, wow, a resurrection, imagine that. He doesn't believe for the sake of believing. He doesn't just decide to believe. He's engaging his heart and mind and soul. What is going on here? What has happened? Now, hold that thought because we're coming back. Occasionally, I will find myself at an event some evening, sometimes it's a charity ball. It could be all sorts of things. And when someone in the congregation wants to introduce me to their two friends, they usually say the same kind of thing. They will say, Tom and Samantha, let me introduce you to my pastor, and then they introduce me. And they emphasize pastor to say, Tom and Samantha, don't say anything stupid or rude. He's a pastor. <laughs> that's what they're saying. And I understand that game is played that way, and that's okay. And Tom and Samantha uh, are very polite and nice. And if we're sitting at the same table, we'll talk about family and friends and the weather. And very occasionally, I'll get into a conversation that goes deeper. The conversation is a bit like this. Now, Richard, you're a pastor. Yes, I'm a pastor. It usually feels like a moment of confession for me. Yes, I'm a pastor. And they'll say, do you really believe? I mean, really believe? And I say, yes, I really believe. Really, really, really believe. And they'll say, do you mind if I ask a question? I say, sure. Richard, it seems to me that Christians kind of just decide to believe one day. Just decide, because it's nice. It's the kind of thing that good boys and girls do. You just, you just believe. Is that how it works? And I say, no, that's not how it works. And then they'll go on with another question. They'll say, now, Richard, I don't mean to offend you, but can I say this? That when Christians talk 
about the truth of the gospel or the resurrection of Christ, that He died for the sins of the world, and that in knowing Him, you can have intimacy with the living God. And when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and Richard, when Christians say that kind of stuff, that comes across as arrogance. Do you see what I'm saying? And I nod and say, yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. Now hold that thought. We'll come back to it in a minute. Because an exclusive truth claim in a 21st century environment does not go down well. People will talk about living in a global village. People will talk about religions being the same all across the world, and therefore no religion has the right to an exclusive claim. If you've been watching National Geographic this week, the well-known actor Morgan Freeman is running with a series called God's Story or the Story of God, where he's traveling around the world looking at different religions. And in essence, I haven't seen it all. I've seen some clips of the first one, but I think they're going to conclude, isn't it nice that all religions are just the same? I think that's where they're going with it. I don't know for certain. But when I get into a conversation that we had moments ago of Richard in a 21st century global village, it's kind of arrogant to make a truth claim that you understand it, you know it all. That seems odd. And then I wait for the illustration to come. And the illustration is usually, or at least often, it's the same. And the person speaking to me will say, Richard, this is how I see religion. It's a little like... uh, three men who are blind, and they encounter an elephant for the first time. Now, I've used this illustration in the past, so please forgive me if this is becoming a little repetitive for you, but bear with me. And as the three men come across the elephant, the first one catches the elephant by the trunk, and he says, ah, okay, an elephant is an animal that is long and thin and very flexible. That's an elephant. And the other blind man says, no, he's feeling the leg. And he says, absolutely not. It is powerful and solid and round. The third man says, no, both of you have got it wrong. He's feeling the side of the elephant. He says, an elephant is huge and flat. And then the person goes on to say, each of them have in their own understanding a little bit of truth, and so they're all equally right and all equally wrong. That's religion. And I have to say, that's a great illustration. It's very popular, it's prevalent, it's plausible, But in using that illustration, you have become the very thing you were complaining about. Because the person giving the illustration is saying this, I and I alone see the whole picture. And I can see where the men have got it wrong. And I understand where their feelings are. And I've got it right. So in order to make an argument against a truth claim of exclusivity, they themselves have become the determining factor in what is right and what is wrong and what is truth and what is false. And when we find ourselves living out the gospel day by day by day in our working environment and in our neighborhood and in conversations with family and friends, and someone says to you, now, tell me a little about Christianity. Isn't that a little arrogant? 
say, hold on. Christianity is not about arrogance. It's about truth. Is it true? Do you remember last Sunday morning when we teased out that whole business of truth as a social construct from your own community? Do you remember that? And our question at the end of it was, I hear the philosophical argument, but is it true? And that's the question for Easter Sunday morning. Is it true? Peter, John, Mary did not commit intellectual suicide. They didn't turn off their brains and say, it doesn't really matter. We're just believing because we want to believe. They were faced with the facts of the resurrection. That's what's going on right here. That's what's happening. Now, notice as we come back to the passage, what happens next. Finally, verse 8, as Peter was rationalizing and working it through in his mind, gazing intently, John is the focus of the passage next. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. He saw and believed. And incidentally, that's the third Greek word to suggest he looked. Looked casually was the first one. Looked intently was the second. Understanding and looking intently, trying to work out what was going on, looking for explanation. And the third use is this. He looked and perceived and saw and understood and knew what had happened. That was John. He looked inside and he saw and believed. Did he know everything about the resurrection? Probably not. Did he understand all that the Old Testament had taught about Jesus fulfilling the eternal purposes of God through the resurrection? Probably not, because in brackets, after he saw and believed, you'll see it, they did not fully understand from the Scriptures, in other words, from the Old Testament, that Christ was to rise. They didn't understand it all, but they had enough to understand this, that Christ had risen, and they could trust Him and hand over their entire life to Him, and He would lead and guide and direct them from that point on. He would forgive them and transform them. They would fall in love with Him and have intimacy with the living God. That's what happened right there. That's what took place. Now, in subsequent centuries, when the apostles were preaching the gospel across the Roman Empire, and the gospel began to impact families and communities and countries, and the gospel was on the rise across the Roman Empire, there was a need for a simple, straightforward explanation of the faith. And that's where the Apostles' Creed comes from. And when you get down to the stanza in the Apostles' Creed that says, I believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. That's why it's there, because it crystallizes and summarizes what the Scripture teaches. Now, you may be here this morning saying, Richard, I'm with you so far. I understand what you're saying. I think I get it. But what 
does the creed mean when it says, he descended into hell? What is it talking about? Well, 1 Peter chapter 3, towards the end of the New Testament, Peter is writing. And Peter talks about Jesus descending into hell to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And down through the centuries, that has been the classical understanding. And lots of New Testament scholars and theologians will say, yep, we are happy and comfortable to go along with the fact that Christ, after Calvary, had gone to hell to proclaim the redemption of God was now accomplished, and the love and grace and mercy of God was complete at Calvary. And that's a popular understanding. But it's not the only understanding of the Apostles' Creed here. And there are several understandings, but the other, and I think more popular version, is this that when the apostles write of Jesus descending into hell, they are focusing on the suffering of Christ for our sins. And they are focused on Gethsemane, and then they're focused on Calvary, and all that was accomplished then. Now, folks, let me take you a little deeper in these closing moments, and please stay with me. Some of you will be familiar with this, but some of you may be hearing it for the first time, so please pay attention. And the Scripture teaches again and again and again and again that when Christ hung on the cross at Calvary, and He cried out, out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He cried out in Aramaic, and he was crying from grief and bereavement, and he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And at the very point of his greatest need, when he needed his Father's presence and his renewing, strengthening love, his Father turned his back on his only beloved Son and walked away. And he laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why we began this morning with that passage from Isaiah. Our sins were laid on Him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, He became sin for us. It wasn't that He was simply blamed, but He became sin. He became sin incarnate. The very manifestation of evil from all the centuries was laid on Him. That's why we sang the power of the cross. That's why in that hymn, it talks of the wrath of God being poured out on Him, and it was poured out on Him in order that it would not be poured out on us. And the Apostles' Creed sums it up. He descended into hell for us. That's what's going on there. And what about the rest of the passage? Well, in these closing seconds, let me suggest this, that Mary stepped away from the mouth of the cave 
We don't know much more mouth of the tomb, rather. We don't know much more about exactly what happened to Peter and John. I imagine they went back, probably to the upper room where they'd been staying, and Mary is left in the garden on her own. And she's trying to take in all that had happened over the last three days. The arrest, the trial, the execution, the death of Christ. And now it seems as if someone has stolen the body. What was going on? Mary's background was that of demonic possession. And I freely confess I have never come across anyone struggling with demonic oppression and obsession. I never want to be near it. But can you imagine all that she'd gone through? And now on that Easter Sunday, distraught, bewildered, confused, drained, her background was what? A vortex of self-loathing and anger and suspicion and hatred. And then when she met Christ, all had changed. Everything had changed. And she'd become whom God had intended her to be. And in her mind, I imagine her thinking, is that it? Is it now finished? Is it over? And Jesus approaches her and speaks to her, and he says to her, who are you looking for? He doesn't say to her, what are you looking for? But who are you looking for? And she glances out the corner of her eye. She's not gazing intently. She doesn't look and believe, but it's a casual glance. She thinks he's the gardener. It's understandable. It's a garden tomb. And he asks her again, why are you crying? And as she turns in his direction, he says one word. And she was transformed again. A single word. A word that her parents would have used. A word full of love and renewal, and transformation. And he speaks to her in Aramaic, and he says, Mary. Mary. He calls her by her name. And there she understands again the resurrection, that all he claimed to be was real. And this morning when we say, I believe, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again. We don't say it because we are arrogant. We don't say it to lord it over anyone else. We've got it right. You've got it wrong. We say it with an attitude and of gratitude and thanksgiving because we have been touched by the gospel. We have not committed intellectual suicide and checkered brains at the door on a Sunday morning, but we have worked it through rationally and logically, and we have come to a point of trust in a risen Savior. That's why we say, I believe. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture. Thank you that you have exposed us to your love and your grace and transformed us. Father, we recognize you have not made us perfect, and we recognize that we sin and there are days when we are far from you, but we also recognize your love and your goodness. Forgive us, 
cleanse us, renew us, strengthen us. Enable us this week to see you at work. Enable us to intently look into your word and to grow in grace. Father, bless us, please, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you're representing who needs prayer. 